An Aryan brother is without care. He walks where the weak and heartless won't dare. For an Aryan brother, death holds no fear. Vengeance will be his through his brothers still here. And if by chance he should stumble and his purpose avoid, his brothers will be there to help embrace the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. Is life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline that we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death? Take her to the moon for me, okay? Well, welcome, friends, to episode 250 of Embrace the Void, where everything right is wrong again. I am your host, Aaron, and in celebration of our numerical milestone, I've got a very special guest to discuss the luck of being raised by Nazis. Perhaps the most on-brand conversation I've ever had. Before we get to that, you may have noticed the change to our intro music. This is also going to be the last time I do one of these post-music intros. They made more sense in the original format of the show, but these days it's feeling a bit excessive. Any important announcements will now be at the end of the show with the thanks. But since we're here, one last announcement. I've decided to keep the show every other week, alternating with Philosophers in Space. I'm really torn about this because I have a long list of folks I'm excited to talk to, and this will mean we get to them slower. But I've been feeling like the weekly format isn't allowing enough time for each guest. So we're going to try fewer episodes that are a bit longer and see how that feels. Okay. Enough housekeeping, let's make with the Nazi shit. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Brittany Page, a psychotherapist and co-host of the I Doubt It podcast. Brittany, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you. Thank you for coming on for my 250th episode, too. Uh, long-time listeners of the show will have noticed that, maybe coincidentally, maybe just because I talk about it a lot, these large number episodes often are about Nazi shit. Mm-hmm. And you have some inter- interesting things to share on that particular subject. Um, we got introduced through a mutual listener. We've talked about it on a couple of places now, so we're not going to dive into that took again. But like, uh, they were correct that you and I have lots of things we want to talk about together. So, you know, I'll just dive right into that. Do you want to tell folks a little bit about sort of your experience, background, what makes you an interesting person to talk to about this subject? About Nazi shit. About Nazi shit. Yes, (laughs) specifically. Yeah. Well, I was raised in the white power movement and I like to distinguish my upbringing from normal everyday American racism because it's not just uh, your Uncle Gary that I was raised by. It is, my parents moved us from Southern California to Idaho to be closer to Aryan Nations Mm -hmm. when Aryan Nations was located in Northern Idaho. And we attended the events at Aryan Nations, uh, the World Congress meetings that they held there. And 
various indoctrination that that we had. We were often told things about racial minorities, encouraged to use racial slurs, a lot of terrible, terrible things. Yeah. And, you know, when I found out about this, I obviously had 10 million questions because it intersects with all of the things that I'm interested in, luck, Nazis, conspiracy theories, everything, right? Yeah. And you've been really wonderful about me asking you a million questions about it. And I was, it was actually interesting when I was prepping for this interview, I didn't expect it to be so challenging to come up with questions for this format mm. compared to just chatting with you in, in real life about this stuff. Because I guess it always felt like when I was writing the questions, it was slipping into the like Oprah Winfrey, you know, inspirational story, yeah. Nazi to riches kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and like, I don't want to, you know, I don't think either of us are into that kind of approach. So I'm curious, how do you sort of think on that like meta level about the kind of weirdness of trying to talk about the these issues in these kind of formats? Yeah, well, I'm very cautious of that. I have... Sometimes people will reach out from my childhood and say, you know, I'm a teacher now and I've used your story as inspiration for my classroom to let people know that they can overcome anything. And I say, whoa, whoa, that's not the point of this story. <laughs> uh, I, I want to obviously encourage people to reflect on how they can help other people. I think that that's one of the key aspects of my story is luck in the various people that I encountered in my life that helped me get out of that situation. There were different phases that I went through in my life, different things that I found that kind of helped me along on the journey. And I don't think that any of those things are a recipe to be replicated for everyone to get out of a similar situation. Mm -hmm. But I do think that highlighting luck and the actual people that entered my life that helped me escape mm -hmm. are the key aspects of that. I don't think there's anything unique about me I don't right. think there's anything special about me. I'm not Tony Robbins. I <laughs> I don't I don't want that to be the message that people get when they hear me talk about it. But I do consider myself very lucky that I was given the opportunities that I was. And I hope that I can be a person that creates opportunities for other people to get out of similar situations. Yeah. And this is part of why our, I think our Venn diagrams very heavily overlap is that like, not just are you coming from this Nazi as shit, but it's, you also approach it with a similar kind of luck mindset, I think to stuff that I often talk about with the moral luck uh, kind of stuff. And I, I like the way that you really heavily center, you know, this, this wasn't like I persevered and gritted my way out of it or something like oh, that. No, right? No. There's like these kind of, complexities to that. So we'll, we'll talk about that stuff a little bit, but let's, let's help folks understand a little bit more just what we're even kind of talking about. Cause I think people have sort of, when you say Aryan nation, for example, people have one thing in their mind and it might not be sort of what you actually experienced. So like, do you want to talk some about kind of like the day to day Aryan nation life? Is it like banality of evil kind of vibe? Is it like constant weirdness? What is the, how, how did you experience that growing up? Well, I, I come from a poor background, so my parents, neither of them graduated high school. My dad got his GED in prison the same year that I graduated high school. And so they're poor, working very hard on welfare, struggling financially. And I think that that, like we see with the current political climate, animated a lot of their prejudice and race, racist beliefs. Mm -hmm. So... 
in terms of our doctrination, we were often told that we were descendants of the Vikings. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of the Nordic racial purity teachings using Viking symbols, lessons about Odin and mm-hmm. and all of those various things. I think the Charles Murray line of thinking that there's something unique about black people that makes them less intelligent and inferior to white people was a mm-hmm. common mm-hmm. lesson that we were taught from a very young age. And I, I think obviously believing that the Holocaust never happened was a big part of that too. A lot of anti-Semitism. Well, that's an interesting one. Did it did not happen or did it happen and it was good or like it didn't, it wasn't as bad as everyone says it was. Was there any nuance there or, or like what, what was, what version of denial do you feel like you were getting? Well, listen, we're not, we don't, there's no nuance in these beliefs. <laughs> okay. okay? <laughs> we're talking about very uneducated people who are trying their best to explain the world to their kids and, and have their kids be carbon copies of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so nuance, not a word that's at play here, Yeah, but well, definitely believing that it was something that didn't happen. I mean, I didn't believe the Holocaust happened until I was in 10th grade. Like it was a story made up to defame Hitler kind of situation. Defame Hitler, garner support for Jewish people Mm -hmm. um, because they are running the world. Mm, Right, of course. And this lesson was instructed to us through the movie They Live, Mm. which is a movie where uh, Roddy Piper puts on sunglasses and he can see that certain people within the population are aliens, including like on billboards, for example. Right. And this was shown to us as though it was a documentary about Jewish people and how they are ruling the world. Yeah. And that's, that's something really fascinating when you mentioned it before, because, you know, when you listen to like knowledge fight folks talk about Alex Jones, for example, you can see over and over again, how he is often citing the matrix or other kinds of art as if they are actual proof to some degree. And, you know, like he actually has a view where it's like, there's a rule, a cosmic rule between good guys, God and the baddies where they have to like seed a bunch of like hints into mm-hmm. media and mm-hmm. at the same time do the thing they're doing and that makes us deserve it. Yeah. I, obviously there's that, that level of complexity here, but it is interesting which cultural touchstones, some of which I wish didn't exist because they are used in this way, right. get picked up by these communities. It's like, see, it's here's the proof. Yeah. Were there other ones besides They Live that you feel like were heavily involved in your education? I think They Live is probably the most prominent example My dad left when I was 12. So once he left, the intense racist programming Mm -hmm. was somewhat abandoned because at that point, my mom needed to support four kids. Mm -hmm. And so she found a church to go to. And although she still held a lot of these white supremacist beliefs, she realized that she needed to kind of keep them under wraps if she was to get support from people and survive. Mm -hmm. And so I think that she kept it hidden a lot. And a lot of that indoctrination kind of went away. And because she started struggling so much to survive and take care of us, the grip that she had on preventing me from getting any kind of outside education or influence started to fall away. And Mm -hmm. I I consider that another aspect of luck that Mm -hmm. she was struggling too much and couldn't have that control over my education with all this CRT stuff that's happening with the, the panic that conservatives have over what's being taught in schools. Mm -hmm. I have very real concerns about whether or not I would have made it out of my situation. For example, if I was a kid right now, because Mm -hmm. my mom showed up to my school when I was in fourth grade, demanded that I sit out in the hallway for lessons on native Americans, for example, 
mm-hmm. and I was the only one out there. But mm-hmm. I wonder if I was growing up today, if I would be alone in that hallway now. Yeah. Do you feel like there's stuff like that where things that you look back on as like, well, that was the Nazi shit from my childhood is like mainstream conservative talking points of this like now? Oh, yeah, because I remember feeling embarrassed and like it was something that we needed to hide because I I had the understanding that it wasn't something other people believed. I think that's primarily from seeing the way that the general public would respond to my parents and their outward displays of their beliefs. Like Mm -hmm. my dad would hang the swastika flag outside of our house, which was just in a suburban neighborhood. And they would have the skinheads over and they would have like fight night in the yard with these skinheads, like just brawling in the front yard in a residential neighborhood. And our neighbors didn't like that. Mm. And I knew that as a kid because they would make that clear. Did and, the cops get called? Oh, the frequently? cops. Yeah, the cops were called all the time. Knew my dad by name. My dad was regularly being arrested for domestic violence. And why weren't you? So you said you moved near the Aryan Nation. Why weren't you like living on the compound or something? Or how did that work? Yeah, we didn't move near the compound. We were hours away, and we would travel okay. to Northern Idaho to go to the compound. I see. Yeah. They just wanted to be in closer proximity. Really, they moved to Idaho because Idaho has a lot of white people. It still is like 93% white to this day. Mm-hmm. So it it attracted them primarily because there weren't other races there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were they doing any like non-Nazi stuff? Like would they have jobs? Were they like doing, <laughs> you know, like were they, they struggled to maintain jobs because of the Nazi stuff? I don't think because of the Nazi stuff, probably because of mental illness and drug addiction primarily. Mm. I know that my mom has had many, many jobs, probably over 30 jobs in her lifetime at least. But my dad was a welder. Mm -hmm. He he was able to hold a job and pretty consistently. But again, once he left, then it transitioned to my mom struggled a lot. We were on welfare, struggling to keep the house, struggling to, to make ends meet. And yeah, I think it's a good question, though, because people wonder, like, how are Nazis functioning in society? Mm-hmm. And I would say for my parents, at least, not very well. I mean, regularly getting into physical confrontations in public, mm-hmm. being arrested for battery, mm-hmm. assault. They are people who have maladaptive behaviors and coping mechanisms. And I think that that comes out and is made very clear when they try to exist in society. Yeah, it's interesting because I think there are almost like two versions of the Nazi in people's minds. And Mm -hmm. one is almost like a somewhat internalized view of Nazi propaganda where it's like they're these hyper-efficient, you know, blitzkrieging, organized, you know, your indoctrination is a really well-structured educational program that's sucking you into this worldview versus... The other kind of Nazi, which just seems to be this sort of like barely functional, Mm -hmm. having all of these kinds of issues. Do you feel like in your experiences, it was predominantly more of one or the other of those sort of character types? Definitely the latter. Mm -hmm. I think my dad probably hoped he could be a Richard Spencer type, but because of the chaos, the drug addiction, the domestic violence, that those those things made it difficult Mm -hmm. to create the kind of network that he thought he would be capable of creating. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I mean, when you look at someone like Richard Spencer, it's it's scary to think that someone is able to keep themselves together, make themselves look presentable, 
and make these talking points accessible mm-hmm. for other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned, so you mentioned, you know, drug addiction and these other kinds of mental health issues. Mm-hmm. I, I, what do you feel like is driving these communities? And obviously it's going to be different for different people to some extent, but do you feel like, you know, when people are talking about this this world, you know, from the outside, do you feel like they have a grasp, an accurate grasp on like what is driving the behavior there? Or how would you tweak their understanding of, of what's going, what it, what it feels like on the inside? Do the Nazis know what's driving their behavior or do people outside the community know what's driving Nazis behavior? People outside the community have any grasp of what would you feel like is actually driving the behavior inside these communities? Yeah, I think a lot of times people will talk about hate and kind of center hatred as being the primary motivating factor. Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly believe that plays a role, but I also think that brokenness and an inherent feeling of inferiority, like you're not going to get anywhere in life, like you don't have any opportunity to improve. Uh, And I think they're being given the incorrect answers to that problem Mm -hmm. rather than looking to policy solutions that can improve inequality in our society, for example. Mm -hmm. They turn to the anger and frustration and then start lashing out at racial minorities as though they are the source Mm -hmm. of their problems. Yeah, uh, and and that's that sort of dovetails, I think, really well with some of the stuff I've read about meritocracy issues, where you know they buy this idea of a meritocracy, and then when they don't have it, they they look for someone to blame, or absolutely, um, or even not consciously, but you know unconsciously, ju- you know, blame other people and and take it out on on them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned the luck stuff mm-hmm. in terms of your escape, you know, versus like maybe your family members, for example, right. When you talk about those factors that you're describing there, does it to some extent engender like compassion or pity in you personally? What do you think? How do you think that we should feel about these folks? Should we be like dunking on them and disgusted? Should we be sad <laughs> and, and think it's tragic? Is a mix of those? Mm-hmm. Well, you know that I'm a therapist, so I'm not going to tell anyone how to feel. <laughs> right, right. Setting aside, we're not telling anybody how to feel. Yeah. But, uh, listen, I struggle with that. There's, There's been an entire journey for me personally that I've had to walk with that and my own frustrations with my own family members that have not been able to escape in the way that I have, which, which is certainly frustrating. Uh, it's also sad. And, and so I think it's a mix of the two. I think they can, they can exist together, frustration mm-hmm. and compassion and I think I try to let my compassion lead mm-hmm. and not have frustration be the primary feeling. But it's it's not hard to feel angry and frustrated because ultimately these are views that are damaging, hateful, and have a detrimental effect on other people in society. So it, it's, it's difficult mm-hmm. not to feel that way. But I know for me, when I was a kid, it was transformative when I encountered adults that met me with curiosity and compassion rather than casting me aside as a little Nazi kid. Mm-hmm. If they hadn't met me in that way with compassion and curiosity and trying to learn about why I was saying the Holocaust didn't happen, for example, or why I said that some people don't feel the same way about Hitler as the teacher was saying that she felt about Hitler, mm-hmm. then I I may not have made it out. So mm. I, I think in terms of compassion, it's it's an important aspect of helping people escape and see that the world is an accepting place that can help them Mm -hmm. and that it's not the place that their 
family is telling them that it is. Do you have a sense of like why they, those those teachers sort of took that extra time, tried to help you in that kind of way where they just happened to be very sort of compassionate teachers or something or do you think about that at all? Yeah, I think about that a lot because especially I have three siblings. So I kind of compare my experience with my other siblings and my other siblings didn't necessarily have the same experience. So I think there's a mix, right? I think I'm a white blonde kid and Mm -hmm that can engender greater compassion than it would for, in certain other cases. Mm-hmm. I I don't know what else is the explanation there. I think, again, this is where we come back to luck because there's certain things that just can't be explained other than I just happened upon being at the right place at the right time, encountering the right person at the right time. Mm-hmm. And I like what you say about this, and I'm, I, I'm starting to reference this quite a bit, which is that we have the ability to create more of those instances of luck I'm not trying to say that we, we can't recreate this. It just happened for me and I'm, I'm grateful that it happened for me. I think we can recreate moments of this where if you're hearing a story that it's important that I encountered a teacher who helped me kind of get out of this thinking that that means more teachers can create more of those situations where they're intervening with kids who are expressing concerning things in class. Mm, yeah. And you know, this was something we talked about before, this like question of how did you get out, which is a question, you know, I ask because each individual story is interesting. And I think I worry sometimes that it gets into a place of like, oh, we'll we'll collect these stories and then create a general plan for getting everybody out of these sorts of situations, which I don't, I don't necessarily think it works that way. But I also hear what you're saying that like, we, we can find some some reliable ways to at least hopefully improve people's odds or something like that. So, so like to that end, were there like specific arguments? Were there specific emotional appeals or something that you feel like those people who were putting in that, in that extra effort used in order to get you to start questioning this stuff more? Mm-hmm. I think it was more that I two things started to happen at the same time. I started to understand more fully the household that I grew up in and how it was abnormal and how it was unhealthy and how I had been told things that were not correct combined with encountering compassionate adults who started to tell me how the world actually operated. So like these two Mm. things were happening at the same time where I'm learning, wow, other people don't grow up in a situation where the cops are constantly being called and your Mm -hmm. dad is in and out of jail and your mom is always high on prescription pills and they're like telling you blatantly inaccurate things about history. That's not normal. Mm -hmm. And then I encountered teachers that were like, here's an accurate view of history and let me hear more about what you were told and here's actually what happened and this is reality. So I started to lose respect for my parents, which I think was a key part of allowing me to to shed some of those beliefs and let go of the fact that they were right about things. I had to admit they're not right about things. Mm-hmm. And then allowing people to enter my life and and help me change those views was crucial. I don't know that there's specific arguments. I think it was just learning that the world had been misrepresented to me mm-hmm. and having access to that information and having the people tell me that real information in a way that wasn't, you're wrong about this. Let me tell you what's right. Yeah. You feel like the how of the telling is more important sometimes than the content in terms of I do the way they were reaching out. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. 
So that, that makes sense. And so do you also feel like you were sort of coming from a place of being more questioning initially? Or do you feel like you were pretty gung-ho into this stuff until they started, until those cracks started to form? It's hard for me to know and put myself back in Mm -hmm. that place, especially with memory being as fallible as it is. Yeah. Do you feel like you retcon your story a little bit sometimes? (laughs) Well, or do you worry about it? I mean, no, because I, I am able to talk to other adults who knew me at the time, who knew my family at the time, who were outside of that. I'm able to compare my stories with my sibling stories and uh, we talk about things, but I will say that when I was in middle school, and this is the time that I'm still believing that the Holocaust didn't happen, right? Middle school. I, my closest friend at the time was a black girl Mm -hmm. and I was very good friends with her. She would come over to my house and I actually messaged her mom a few years ago and said like, what was your experience of dropping your daughter off at my house, knowing what my house was. Right. And her mom said that she had a conversation with my dad about how she wouldn't want him to treat her poorly. And if she got any kind of report that my dad was treating her poorly, that that would be the last that she was at my house. Like she confronted my dad about it. Mm -hmm. My parents didn't seem to have an issue with me having friends who were people of color. Mm -hmm. The problems entered when I started dating people who were not white. Mm -hmm. So I could be friends with people who were not white. Dating people who were not white was the problem. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of getting to like the great replacement theory stuff that we're hearing a lot about today. Right. And yeah. Yeah, and and in that situation, I, I would imagine, right, if you had black male friends, for example, it would be assumed that they were amorous and there would be problems and such. Oh, absolutely. There was a time where I took a disposable camera to school in like seventh grade and I got the pictures developed. And again, we're talking about Idaho here. There's like very few black kids at, at the school. Right. And maybe there were three at that time. And mm-hmm. one of them happened to be a black male in a lot of the uh, photos in the background. And simply having him in the background of these photos got me in trouble. I started mm. being interrogated about who he was, why he was in these photos, what is my connection to him, how much am I talking to him? Because there was this paranoia and concern mm-hmm. that I'm you know, a seventh grader who's going to start a relationship and get pregnant by a Mm -hmm. black man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) So, you know, you're obviously you're out of it now. And um, thank you for making that clear. Yeah. Once again, right. You're my (laughs) my favorite Um, (laughs) ex-Nazi. But, you know, when you look back, what was your experience of you know, you've mentioned defending Hitler, Holocaust denial. Are there parts of, you also mentioned like the fight club stuff, parts of the like honor culture and violence side of things that yeah. you feel you were a part of and, you know, struggle with maybe mm-hmm. things that you did while you were a part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know that it's things that I did. I think that obviously my parents prioritized us learning how to fight very young as kids. Like we were told that this was an important life skill that we would need to know. Mm -hmm. And so I was in wrestling when I was a kid, my mom would take me to the boxing gym. She was a boxer and it was very important that they teach us how to fight. So Mm -hmm. I think when I was younger, I carried myself in a way that would keep people away from me, uh, would keep people scared of me. 
in a way to protect myself. Mm-hmm. And it, it was my mom's coping mechanism. It was my dad's coping mechanism. They carried themselves that way in, in public, very confrontational, mm-hmm. very conflict oriented. And it wasn't until I became an adult that I understand, okay, it's not important to know how to fight. Most people never get into a fight in their life. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's good for self-defense purposes when you need to protect yourself, but conflict is not everywhere in the world. You don't, you don't go out and find conflict every day. Mm-hmm. And if you are finding it every day, that that says more about you than it does the world. Yeah. Do you think that that is, is it like a chicken and egg sort of situation where like that violent behavior is, they have the, the mindset about the world always being in conflict with them. And so they go and find that conflict or they need the conflict. And so they generate it. Do you think, what do you think like sort of continues to to motivate that 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 sort of very at the surface level kind of violent energy yeah I think that's hard to hard to parse out certainly Mm -hmm. and if I look at my parents I mean both of them were engaging in consistent conflict from a very young age with other people so part of that is just the intergenerational transmission of trauma and cycles of abuse and addiction and carrying out and affecting them in a really real way that they were unable to get away from. So I think when you are caught up in that cycle, it's hard to take a step back and get out of it, especially if no one is making an attempt to intervene and show you a different way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and we should also, I think it's important to highlight, because we're talking a lot about like people who've intervened and been helpful and those, you know, those are very good things that people can do and we encourage it. But at the same time, I think it's important to highlight that nobody has an obligation to do that sort of thing, right? Like, yeah. you know, we, you and I, we've been talking this weekend a lot about like moral obligations and moral responsibilities and stuff like that. You know, this is something that feels very, uh, well, we, super, super erogatory is a technical term, above and beyond, right? right? It's the like, it's good if you want to do this, but no one has an obligation. And do you feel like similarly that how, oh, how you approach these issues? Oh, yeah. absolutely. In fact, I feel a lot of, I, I feel conflicted about it because mm-hmm. I, I understand that there is justifiably a reason that people want to stay away from people that are in these communities. And in fact, I feel conflicted about the odds of encountering an adult who is immersed in this movement and being able to convince them otherwise. That's why when I tell my story, I really emphasize that people got to me when I was still very young and Mm -hmm. that I was able to see a different way because I was still malleable. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how malleable adults in this movement actually are or what it would look like to convince adults who are in this movement to get out. I don't know what the answers are there. I feel like that is an entirely different conversation Mm -hmm. and encouraging people to like go out and network with adult Nazis is, uh, an entirely different conversation. <laughs> right. Cause you're also exposing people to the risk of like random acts of violence. Oh, absolutely. Discussing and, absolutely. You know, like, yeah. Um, we've been watching Sopranos and I always, I see so many comparisons in these honor cultures in terms of like, even people who are trying to help are sort of constantly like putting themselves at risk of mm-hmm. getting sucked into totally pointless, random violence. Yeah, it's absolutely the case. Um, so let's, so let me ask you one more thing about how people, I don't want this to come off as an attack because I know you've talked to lots of people about this and you probably get lots of different kinds of reactions, but I think it is worth talking about, you know, what kind of reactions you do get when you tell people about these experiences. And again, you know, you're a therapist, you're not going to tell people how to feel, but like what kind of reactions (laughs) you would prefer, you know, to get from people or you love a little bit more of this kind of reaction rather than that kind 
when you are discussing these things? Yeah, I think that I, this is my life. And I, I don't think of it as a sad story. You know, it, it can be certainly, I would say it's tragic in some ways. You know, I, I am a person who was born into an environment where my parents could not effectively care for me. And I've, I've never really had parents to rely on. I haven't talked to my mom for almost 10 years. My dad died by suicide after being released from prison this year. And I hadn't mm -hmm. talked to him for 20 years. There are certainly sad aspects to it, but I, I don't think that when I tell my story, I want to hear sympathy or I'm sorry that that happened to you because I'm in my 30s. I've done a lot of personal work on what my life is, how I have had to overcome these obstacles in my life. And, and so I, I don't necessarily like hearing the I'm sorry or sympathy. I want to be able to talk about my life just like anyone else talks about their life. You know, mm -hmm. these are my experiences. And I think that there's lessons to be learned from those experiences. And I think that's really the point of talking about these things. Mm -hmm. Also, I don't feel so rare, especially when it comes mm. to growing up in an environment immersed in domestic violence and abuse and drug addiction. I mean, that's actually quite common mm -hmm. in our society. And those are things that I think we should be talking about more so that people don't feel as much shame when they're opening up about those things. Like they're mm -hmm. being judged for having grown up in that environment or like it says something about them or their character that they come from that, that they must be broken mm -hmm. or unhappy or unstable, or it says something about their relationships. There's a lot of negative judgments that society places on people who come from these backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously you add white supremacy into that mm -hmm. <laughs> in a white power movement mm -hmm. and people are going to be rightfully suspicious of, of your background. Mm -hmm. I think when people meet me with curiosity and ask questions like you, for example, that is a helpful mm -hmm. way to look at it. I understand that when I tell people who are not white about my background, that there's automatically increased suspicion. And I have certainly been met with that. And I totally understand that. Mm -hmm. And uh, even then there's curiosity oftentimes of how did you get out of it? What are your beliefs now? Mm -hmm. And I appreciate those questions because it gives me the opportunity to, to talk about my story. And I agree with you about the, like this is not that super uncommon. Like it has a kind of extreme flavor to it because of the explicit part of it, but not just the domestic violence stuff, but also like the racism, you know, we've been having this massive conversation about the degree, the quantity of racism in America and ongoing kinds of stuff like that. How does this background impact your thinking about like social justice arguments, quote unquote, woke kind of white privilege, all those kind of things. Does it, you know, are you more sympathetic? Are you also like in some ways uniquely critical about some of those approaches based on what you've seen? I, I Again, that's been a journey for me. I think mm -hmm. when I first heard the term white privilege years ago, I was probably snarky about it and didn't accept it as something that should uh, be taken seriously because at the time I was thinking, well, look at my life, you know, I was the standard poor white background. Exactly. Response, yes. Yeah. And like, look at how hard my life has been. But then I understood that that's not what people mean when they talk about white privilege. And, and it's undeniable that my life has been easier because I'm a white woman. And there are different things that are uh, come into that too, w with the white woman, but white privilege absolutely is a helpful way. I think of looking 
at my life, at other people's lives, uh, mm -hmm. ties into luck. I don't know that people are as accepting when they hear the term white privilege. I think that it's obviously loaded and there's a lot of controversy surrounding it, but I feel lucky again to have in high school found a government class where I started to learn about politics. And even though I was raised in the white power movement with my parents, like revering Pat Buchanan, for example, I found my way toward leftist politics, thankfully. Mm -hmm. And that happened in high school. And I only grew stronger in those beliefs over time. And through the podcast, I doubt it. We've been doing it for almost eight years, I think. And in that time, I think you can listen to my beliefs change within those eight years mm. and, and become closer to, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders type politics now. And mm -hmm. social justice is definitely an important part of my political orientation and making society more equitable and using my power and privilege to do that. Mm. Do you have... In, the, in that journey, is there any, like, advice that, you know, nudges that you would give for folks who you're very sympathetic to on the left where it's like it would have helped if someone had done this or not done this, in my experience, that maybe would also apply to other people's experiences? Yeah, that's tough. I, I think for me it was a personal journey of accepting what the actual arguments were and not trying to project my own meaning on the arguments like white privilege, mm -hmm. for example, I had to actually understand what that meant when people said it rather than creating a caricature and then arguing with that caricature mm -hmm. that isn't actually the argument. So I think a willingness to learn is, is critical, a willingness to evaluate your beliefs and be curious about other perspectives. Curiosity has really saved me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, was, I guess the luck of being a curious individual, right? <laughs> How did I know that you were going to you go set me up there? For you, you, you put it right. You tempted me. I know. You're clearly baiting me. Yeah, you're reading you a know. script. I wrote that for you. It's fine. This can be an attack <laughs> on me. It's fine. Um, we've been talking a lot about the like white nationalism side of things, but y'all on your show and, you know, when I talk about this stuff, uh, you know, in the atheist world and not... I, you know, heavily try to emphasize the sort of Christian part of the white Christian mm -hmm. nationalism to the point where, like, I think there's a good argument that they are fundamentally somewhat indistinguishable as concepts. Mm -hmm. What was your experience like in this world of the Christian part of it? How did that play into, you know, the whole world image, like the Norse stuff, all that kind of things? Yeah. For me, it wasn't big in my household. The Obviously, you had to be a Christian to get into Aryan Nations. There's a sign out front that says it's the Church of Christ. You have to believe in Jesus Christ in order to get in. It also says whites only in the front. So obviously, my parents had to profess some sort of Christian belief in order to get in. I don't remember it being a significant part of our teaching. So... For me, Christianity was less prominent in the actual teaching in my household, although I had the understanding that it was important when we would go to World Congress, for example, at Aryan Nations. Uh, obviously, they have the cross lighting is what they call it. A lot of people mistakenly call it the cross burning. It's like a tree lighting ceremony is what yeah, you're saying. I yeah. see. Mm -hmm. And I, I was present for that at mm -hmm. one point. So, yeah, it wasn't a significant part, but I think it's important to recognize that it is a significant part for most of the individuals that are engaged in the white power movement, especially right now as we're seeing it so prominently with mm -hmm. these domestic terrorist events and mass shooters that are 
creating manifestos that clearly delineate views that are white power associated and also highlight Christianity. Yeah. So do you see it as like sort of a, you know, just taking the pieces of it that fit into the narrative of white supremacy in a like vague Protestanty kind of way? Is there, you know, is it, is it also just like mostly using it to add to the like Jews or Christ killers kind of, you know, like, like picking and choosing those pieces in that kind of way? Yeah, I think the only way that people's beliefs survive in this mm-hmm. movement is to pick and choose. I mean, it's kind of going back to what you said about the nuance. There's mm-hmm. not <laughs> not a lot. I mean, if you start to really grapple with these beliefs and really try to get in there with the details, it's going to start to fall apart and not make sense. And so it is held together and propped up by mm-hmm. a lack of nuance. Once mm-hmm. you start trying to get to that place where you're dissecting it, it's not going to hold up. Mm-hmm. I, I always think about these folks when people use the term Judeo-Christian, mm. which people maybe don't know, as I understand it, was developed as a kind of cultural shift euphemism trick to, to like paste over the history of anti-Semitism and pretend that like Jews and Christians have always been besties mm-hmm. so that we can then also get together and fight, you know, the Muslims, obviously, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, do they, do they, they don't, they don't use that term, though. They would probably, I think, sort of be critical of the idea that this is one tradition that, like, Christianity is coming out of Judaism in that kind of way. Or how does that does that come up at all? I mean, obviously, like, the nuance doesn't come up at all for for in that world. But like, how do you think about you know parsing those kinds of talking points? Yeah, I think it certainly did not come up at all in my household. Again, we're talking about two people who didn't graduate high school, not to denigrate people who aren't graduating high school. I'm just trying to indicate their education level. And then obviously we're talking about two people who were not very curious about the reality of the world and reality of historical events. So Mm -hmm. obviously they're not going to be uh, researching these things as thoroughly as you have, for example. Right. Well, I think... I think I get an image from like debunker media and literature. You know, you think of people like McVeigh showing up at Waco and having like a bunch of, you know, Turner diaries and other like books and having them on his car and giving them to people. And this sort of like culture of passing around stuff like Turner diaries. Mm -hmm. And I guess I wonder, maybe there is some of that in the subculture. Do you feel like though a lot of the time it's not even that structured, that it's much more passing around of vague ideas and calling it a day? I think for most people in the movement, it probably is vague ideas that help explain their station in life, help explain some of the things that they're feeling and that it isn't as structured. I think, you know, if you're talking about some of the leaders in the movement, Mm -hmm. yes, they're probably trying to have it be more structured, but I think most people that are in the movement probably not as structured as as you think it is. Mm. So how does this then, because you guys do politics stuff a lot on your show, mm-hmm. you know, how do you deal with watching what's happening with the GOP? Do you find it like especially disturbing? Do you feel like you're seeing things beyond like the great replacement stuff that's getting mainstreamed? And like, do you have any sense of, you know, is this going to, do you feel like this is any chance of this de-escalating or do you just feel like, like this is the fight clubs that you experienced growing up? It just is going to keep, you know, going more in that direction. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's probably where the the structure comes in because Mm. now we're starting to see 
things be mainstreamed on Tucker Carlson's show, for example, the number one cable TV show. Tucker Carlson is talking openly about great replacement theory. He is talking openly about concerns with immigration and how they want to replace white people. So these are no longer under wraps. You you no longer need to have a pamphlet passed to you when you are at an area nations meeting. You can just turn on Fox News and see Tucker Carlson talking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think when it comes to like referencing literature, for example, or like passing things around, you don't need that anymore. You just watch Tucker Carlson and then you can get that indoctrination through your TV. Mm-hmm. So I think that is the thing that scares me the most is when I was a kid this wasn't as out in the open and it was something that I understood that I should be ashamed of, that it was something that wasn't common. Not everybody believed this. In fact, I felt like the minority in my class because not everyone believed the same things about the Holocaust. Not everyone respected Hitler. In fact, Mm -hmm. I was the only Mm -hmm. one expressing that because there was, you know, a picture of him in my house. (laughs) So, um, I think that that's the most concerning element is Donald Trump really just opened up a door that we don't know how to close right now. And unless we grapple with the reality that is these talking points are becoming very prominent, they are straight out of white power activist circles. More people are now being indoctrinated. Mm hmm. That, that's that's the most concerning aspect right now. Yeah, I think so. And, and that like in a way where it's hard to help them understand it's indoctrination because it's coming from such a popular mainstream source in that kind of way. Right. And that they can probably point to so many other people that share it right. that makes it more respectable rather than something they feel like they need to hide. Right. And the heterodox folks start saying, well, maybe we need to have a debate about the great replacement or something. And then right. it's like we're off to the races. Right. Um, yeah. So like we're, we're running a little bit on time here. I know, obviously, you're not going to have the policies to solve this. I don't think anybody has, like, any clear policies. I want to talk a little bit about, like, various policy arguments that have been put forward to varying degrees. So one would be something like, you know, we need to stop focusing on trying to deprogram individuals and focus on the material conditions that are causing these problems, get better, you know, mental health care, better economic support. Do you feel like if, like, you're... You know, if the people that you had met had had better economic opportunity and resources that they would have been not in this situation? Or do you worry that, like, that's ignoring the, like, loss of pride and meaning stuff that would still be there no matter how comfortable they felt? Yeah, I definitely do not want to be the person who is saying that uh, people voted for Trump because of their economic situation over their racial animus Mm -hmm. because I definitely think that the racist views can be a potent motivator above and beyond the economic situation. I will say that I think it is better when you are able to help people be in a station in life where they don't feel as desperate and start turning to other methods to explain why their life is the way that it is. Mm -hmm. It's just going to create fewer opportunities, I think, for people to go down these paths if they exist in a more equitable society. So I I don't know that Mm -hmm. it's going to solve the problem or prevent people from being able to uh, put their rage in a dangerous place. But I think that it's just about creating fewer opportunities for that to exist. For that bad luck. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you're looking at I me. I knew you were smiling, well, and I'm like, I know what's happening. Like, you know, I'm going to say this words immediately after, so yeah. I had to say them. Right? It's like, <laughs> how could I not? Yeah. Um, 
this actually raises a related question in the conspiracism psychology kind of world that I'm, I'm curious what your experience was. Obviously, your parents are a very clear example, but... You know, often I think you see in the literature that like people and in people's anecdotal experiences that like the spiral into whatever bad place, whether it was Nazis or, or you know, other kinds of, you know, COVID stuff or whatever, often starts with a personal crisis, a psychological breakdown or an economic, you know, crisis or something like that that makes them especially vulnerable to the people who come along with this explanation, solution, you know, alter, escapist narrative, whatever it is, right? Do you feel like in general the people that you encountered had similar kinds of stories like that? I would say yes. For my parents' network of friends, the skinheads that would come over, for example, a lot of them were young white men that were lost and, and didn't really have a direction, uh, didn't really have any they weren't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. They weren't going anywhere in life. And I think a lot of them ended up in prison for mm -hmm. committing various crimes. And my dad was certainly in that camp. So yeah, I think a, a lot of times that is the situation for people that got, get caught up in these movements. It's almost like they find a place of belonging, find a group of people that think like them can help explain what's happening in their life. And they, they run with it for as long as they can until they have consequences. Yeah, and I want to maybe we'll talk a little bit in the VIP stuff about like the com connections between that and other, you know, like men's rights groups and things yeah. that are in similar, you know, similar structures in various ways. But I wanted to also ask about, let, let's say, let, we'll call it a policy on the other end of the policy spectrum from like fixing the material stuff. So you mentioned Richard Spencer earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I always like to mention, you know, we were in the same theater group. Um, <laughs> he, let's say he sparked a public discourse about the topic of punching Nazis oh, yes. when he got punched. Yeah. Um, what is your feeling on things like punching Nazis, especially given the, the fight club stuff that you mentioned earlier? Do you feel like that's sometimes a, a, a sometimes solution, a never a good idea uh, option? How do you think about that? I mean, if we're talking about, is it a solution? Mm -hmm. I think the answer is no. If the question is, is it fun? Mm-hmm. The answer is probably yes for a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As long as you're willing to take the risk of physical violence against a Nazi, sure. But is it a solution? Like, is it going to uh, change his mind? No, mm -hmm. I think it has, it runs the risk of making someone more rec recalcitrant in their views, in fact, uh, that people are lashing out at them. Mm -hmm. I am not going to be someone who defends Nazis or Richard Spencer when that happened I'm I'm not like you know going to my podcast like we can't we have to protect Richard Spencer we need to make sure absolutely not I'm uh -huh. not concerned about his well-being I'm not concerned about him being punched in the face or any mm -hmm. other Nazi but you framed it in terms of solution is it a right, solution right. to a problem I, I don't think it's a solution and, and given those different responses do you have a like sort of all things considered moral conclusion like is it moral to just you know deck a Nazi in the street while they're having an interview or is it something that while fun probably should be avoided for the sake of the potential consequences not just for you but for others I mean I would probably land on the side of it being avoided simply because of the potential consequences but if we're asking is it moral I mean, I guess we do have to weigh the consequences when we're asking if something is moral, mm -hmm. but it's hard to, 
uh, not highlight the upside of like seeing someone like Richard Spencer punched in the face, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe it's the honor culture that I was raised in that rears its head a little bit <laughs> in this conversation where I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, some people sometimes mm-hmm. benefit from a little wake up call. From a little being punched in the face. A little wake up call. Yeah. No, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. And I, I've heard similar things before and not just for me personally, but for other people. And Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So are there, are there any like in the policy world, any ideas that you feel like aren't getting enough attention or conversely, like things that you think are really, really bad ideas that get too much attention where you, you know, would love to see a little bit of shifting based on your own experiences about the approaches? Specifically related to the Nazi indoctrination? Basically any portion of the kind of problems that we're working through here, like, you know, reducing the what seems to be the rising problem of this merging with the GOP or, you know, individuals trying to help them or, you know, anything um, where you feel like there's this thing that seems obvious to you that might make a difference that isn't because people didn't, you know, grow up around swastika flags. Mm hmm. Well, I think it's important to battle against the conservatives that are uh, rising up and attending local school board meetings to protest CRT being taught in schools to ban various books. I think it's important that liberals actively fight against this because as they are banning these materials, as they are banning the discussion of certain topics, we're going to see more kids who are unable to escape certain indoctrination. So Mm -hmm. I think that is my primary concern right now is seeing all of these various topics being banned from discussion. You're not allowed to talk about history in an accurate way. Mm -hmm. And when I look at my journey, education is the primary thing that helped me get out starting in high school and then continuing in college because Mm -hmm. I was able to get grants and ensuring that people are able to get things like grants to go to college, ensuring that college is affordable for people so that they can get an education and be exposed to different types of ideas and cultures and ways to understand the world that was pivotal for me so mm-hmm. we're talking about things not being banned in in k through 12 education we're talking about making college more affordable for people so that they have those experiences and i mean reducing inequality on a on a larger scale taxing the rich yeah and the like anti-CRT moral panic stuff is is particularly depressing, not just for like the banning of an information situation, but also because it's a fairly out in the open part of the project of pulling people out of public schools and into homeschooling or charter schools or stuff like that, where it seems like that would be a situation that would have been much worse for you if you were getting that sort of full-time homeschooling. Do you, do you have any feeling about like what we do about what seems to be this exponential growth of you know, specifically Christian, white, evangelical homeschooling movement? I have no idea. Mm -hmm. I think it takes talking about the dangers of it, highlighting the dangers of it, making people more aware. I think we're, because of the pandemic, because of the fatigue that people are feeling, that it's hard to really keep up with a lot of these issues and stay engaged. And there's a lot of hopelessness that happens when you're constantly tethered to the reality that we are existing in with Mm -hmm. just constant hell in the headlines. But I think it takes that consistent political engagement and uh, activism Mm -hmm. to really make sure that we are 
making the changes that we need. Yeah, it's hard to balance that empathy burnout and the activism. Oh, for sure it is. For sure. That's, yeah. what, that's what we're here for in the void, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay, final question, and then I have to torture you, unfortunately. Okay. Um, <laughs> Not more than I've already been tortured, which is the nice thing. No, I think know? it'll feel relatively recreational for you by okay. comparison. Good, good, it's good. not full on Fight Club. Yeah. Um, what resources do you feel like were helpful to you or that you would recommend to folks who wanted to understand all of this stuff better, who are coming from, if not coming from a similar place, are, you know, struggling with something similar or. Anything like that where you would recommend if they wanted to dive deeper, here's some places to look. Yeah, I think it's helpful to follow Kathleen Ballou on Twitter. She is a an expert on researching white power activist movements. She wrote a book called Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. So that is an important resource. We also on the show had uh, Robert P. Jones on. He is the director of the public Religion Research Institute, and he wrote a book, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. Those are two books that are really important, uh, not necessarily for helping me come out of the movement. Those are things that I think have helped, looking backward, explain some of my experiences and help me better understand what's happening for people that are caught up in these movements today. Mm-hmm. Again, it's tough to recreate the resources that helped me specifically escape the movement because it comes down to people being good to me, helping me when I was a kid, mm-hmm. uh, understand what the real world really was, and just education more broadly. But I think if we can all commit to helping other people understand how the world works and being a resource for other people, that that, that would really pay off. All right. People are the resource. Good good call. All right. I like that. So unfortunately, that means I have to torture you. Okay. So this is the enlightening round. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. And even though you are first time around the show, I I I want to announce we're going to be changing up the enlightening round a little bit. I am retiring the real or not real. I think it has had a good run. It's been fun. We've had lots of laughs, lots of torture, but I think we've, we've sort of played the the bit out as far as it could, I think. Um, So we are now moving on to having everyone engaging in the enlightening round two trolley boogaloo. Great. Yeah. So I'm going to give you a list of scenarios and you're going to tell me whether or not you think it is morally permissible to pull the lever. So there are obviously different levels of moral obligation, permissibility, right? So it's just, would it be all right, you think, on your view to pull the lever? Okay. Okay, you ready? A nightmare. Here we go. All right, let's do this thing. So would it be morally permissible to save five people by killing one? Yes. All right. So I assume also save a billion people by killing one? Yes. All right. What about saving yourself by killing one? No. Hmm. Uh, what about, so then I guess I can also say save yourself by killing one million? No. Also no. Right. Save five people by pushing the person responsible for them being on the tracks onto the tracks, you know, derailing the trolley. Really upping the ante here. Um, yes. All right. <laughs> what about... 
It's just my immediate reaction. Uh huh. We're not going to think about it too much. Oh no, don't worry too. Don't okay. worry about it. Yeah, you, you'll get in trouble later. Okay. Whenever right. you know all your Nazism comes out and okay. proves you're a consequential. Are there any specific Nazi ones? Oh, we'll get there. Don't. Okay. Um, <laughs> no. Kill your favorite artist to save their complete body of work. Oh. I guess the entire Earth, Wind, and Fire catalog has to go. <laughs> Why did you just allow that to happen? That's on uh, you. No, okay, I see. You're going to blame me for all of this. Um, save five people, but you've got to go through a teleporter yourself that takes you apart, puts you back together before you can pull the lever. No. No. Save a 10-year-old by killing an 80-year-old. No. Save a world historic person, someone who's really important, influential, etc., by killing a non-world historic person. No. Save your favorite non-human animal by killing one human. No. Really? Interesting. Uh, save a entire species. Well, sorry, excuse me. Uh, save a whole ecosystem. I changed this one. Save a whole ecosystem by killing one human. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Save a sentient artificial intelligence by killing one human. No. Okay. And finally, pull the lever to save a Nazi. <laughs> no. Okay. You survived. How do you feel? Uh, I mean, I feel like I'm going to need to... <laughs> go to a therapy session and unpack a little bit about what my answers mean here and what they say about me. Yeah. How are your moral foundations feeling at the moment? I'm going to need to really do a check-in yeah. with myself and see. A little see. wobbly, eh? Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Brittany. Um, we're going to talk a little bit extra for patrons, but do you want to let non-patrons know where they can find you and your stuff one more time? Yeah. You can follow me on Twitter at Brittany E. Page, and you can check out my podcast with my co-host, Jesse Dollimore. I doubt it podcast yeah and thanks again for having me over to do this stuff it's been fun to record in person it's been great um yeah check out the stuff it's really it's great content if you're like me and you love political analysis it's it's really valuable stuff thanks for having me as a human i was ill-equipped to thank you but as myself you have my everlasting gratitude thanks once again for the 250th time to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thanks as always to our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Alex Beneshek, Jay Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, I changed this name at the beginning of winter, Dude, Fix the Vote, That Bastard Neil Polzin, Chad T, and Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. Y'all have stuck with us for so long. I really genuinely appreciate it. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Filmed Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And... If you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter who raised you, you are the void and the void is you. 